to the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sarah Kuchaya, a doctoral researcher at Swansea University. I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer here at Swansea University. And today we are discussing the cyber law and security happenings of the last month. So we are also joined by a very special guest today. Hi, Luke. Hi there. Uh, Luke is a uh, Swansea University PhD student, mm-hmm. as well as many other things. Do you want to say a little bit Sure. Okay. Well, my name is Luke Haydenruch and I am, um, like Sarah said, a PhD student here at Swansea University with doing a PhD in law, um, which kind of focuses on law, cybersecurity and psychology. Um, I also work as a operational manager for CJCH Solicitors. Um, and the, the firm originated as a criminal law and family law uh, practice, which has evolved over time. And now one of the largest practice areas is IP and specifically anti-piracy and license compliance. So a lot of my research, which is part sponsored by the firm, um, is based on the work we do there. Fabulous. And we should say, actually, especially today, that the views expressed on this podcast are ours and they do not represent those of our employers. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So it's the sixth episode of the podcast, and we've had over 500... uh, listens uh, this month so not this month up up to now (laughs) um but uh, so thank you for listening and yeah we shall start with the first story so the first thing that i wanted to talk about today is a new report that was published late last month so it was released on february 28th and it's called a call to action the cyber aware perception gap so it's a report published under the campaign, the Cyber Aware campaign, which is a a government-run campaign to make people more aware of cybercrime and its um, downfalls. So uh, it was also produced with Britain Thinks, uh, and it was on behalf of the Home Office's uh, RICU team. That's the Research Information and Communications team. So anyway... Basically, the report is about the gap between perceptions of cybercrime and the real threat posed by cybercrime, especially to individuals and SMEs. So I've made some notes <laughs> on uh, the report. Uh, I, I guess it's, 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 it's important to say that you know, it's, it's really good that they are researching this because we, we all have come across data that corroborates the idea that you know the perception of cybercrime is is not uh, on the same level as the threat really and there is definitely a need for for raising awareness of, of what the issues are and how how criminals operate so that being said um, I am not too convinced by this report or uh, particularly the, the tone in which it is the information is presented so uh, the way it's structured is it's got three myths, right? So they, they identify three myths and then they, they've done some research, a couple of focus groups with people to identify these three myths and then they present us with what the actual reality is. First myth is cybercrime isn't something I need to be concerned about. So that sounds like... I, I, I come across that. Is that something... Do you come across that? Like people having an attitude sort of blasé attitude towards cybercrime? Not, I mean, specifically because I work in, obviously, the legal sector, not not so much blasé, more head in the sand. Mm-hmm. So they'll ask some <clears> questions <throat> about certain things relating to cybercrime, and their response will be, 
I've heard about that, but we haven't got there yet, or it's not mm-hmm. high enough on the agenda. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so they, they've identified this as a theme from, from the focus groups they've run. Um, and then they contrast that with the reality that they uh, note that basically the, the, the quote is, if you fail to follow basic cybersecurity measures, there is little that others can do to protect you. So the idea that people have to dismiss cybercrime as a priority they're contrasting that with a reality where if people don't help themselves, then nobody can help them. And I think that's true, right, to an extent. Um, but it, it doesn't touch, the report doesn't touch on the other side of it, which is that we can't say how much hacking, how much phishing happens because of, say, massive data breaches as compared to people don't taking precautions. Because... You can take all of the precautions in the world, but, you know, if you were a TalkTalk Talk, um, uh, customer, <laughs> customer when, when that <laughs> hack happened, you, you could still be a victim. Mm. So I, I, I'm not saying they're wrong in what they've said. I just think this emphasis on the individual being, you know, not being smart enough, not taking the precautions they should take. I, I've noticed that there's an over emphasizing of this issue as being the main issue and less so of you know the things that are a little bit beyond the individual and perhaps SMEs their their control because you know they're relying on third parties to provide the services they're relying on companies to have the right security measures in place anyway so yeah they 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 do actually they mention one excellent piece of research which was the cyber breaches survey um, uh, by DCMS. I think the Home Office had quite a bit of uh, input into that as well. Um, And they mention, of course, the crime survey for England and Wales. So they substantiate um, this idea that, you know, that it's happening, it's out there, there's a lot of it, but they don't don't really unpick it, uh, if that makes sense. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on this. <laughs> I don't have any thoughts on the way they position it. What I do think is, which might not have been uh, mentioned in the report, that potentially what the government's doing from a counteractive perspective is instituting the GDPR. Mm-hmm. So essentially what they're doing there is creating a, a, an instance where the individual is protected, even if the third party isn't, well, not protected, but there are, there are recourses in place if the third party doesn't yeah. protect themselves, which essentially is forcing third parties mm-hmm. or anyone holding data to... Yeah put yeah, those things in yeah, place yeah. and to be fair they do mention that in the report do that, they okay. do yeah um towards the end they do say you know the gdpr they, they mark that as as a bit of a game changer in terms of in with respect to this issue yeah. um so yeah i was thinking if i heard you correctly you said that um if they don't if you don't help yourselves then we can't help you hmm. or words to that effect yeah uh, that this brings to my mind this possibly a clear distinction between cybercrime and other forms of crime. <clears throat> Excuse me. I can't imagine the police force in a region saying, well, if you walk through that dark park at night and get mad, sorry, there's nothing we can do. Or, you know, if you don't have the most up-to-date alarm on your premises and you get burgled, sorry, there's nothing we can do. So I think it, that sort of feeds into this idea as well that cybercrime is somehow qualitatively different mm. to other forms of, of criminal conduct yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure it is no um, and it's the issue of volume versus 
the cases that are worth pursuing as well. I think quite often big numbers I mentioned, you know, cybercrime equivalent to all other crime combined. Well, yes, but all other crime combined is going to include, you know, really, really serious crime and really, really petty crime. And it's important that we distinguish between, say, you know, the organised criminals yeah. in cyberspace and the, the, the really petty crime that perhaps isn't really worth, you know, the resource and whatnot. Anyway, but um, so that was one, one of the myths. They also said that one of the things they stated was that cyber criminals um, are successfully targeting everyone, I quote. Cyber criminals are success successfully targeting everyone. Again, I, I find this statement really problematic because, first of all, yes, they are, because they, it's, you know, if you send out thousands of phishing emails, you're not really... It's a wide net. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the targeting of everyone isn't really the issue. Um, and it's important that we always distinguish between the probability of you being targeted and the probability of you actually falling victim to something. Yeah. And I feel like they're kind of conflating. It's a bit alarmist, you know what I mean? Mm. Saying, okay, everybody is equally... The sky's falling. Yeah, yeah. yeah it just, just sounds... Yeah, it's not very convincing. Anyway, <laughs> so that was, uh, that was myth one. Uh, myth, myth two was that cybercrime isn't real crime. Uh, that it's victimless and all of that, and that's challenged with respect to some good data on volume and average losses. But then again, it's missing the detail because the average losses hide the fact that you've got people who lose everything and people who lose very little. So again, it's just this using these big numbers to create this picture, which I don't think has enough detail to really draw out what law enforcement and, and business can and should be doing about cybercrime. It's, it's, it's obfuscating more than it's, than it's illuminating, I find. So that was myth two. And then myth three is that people feel there is nothing more they can do to protect themselves, so, so they just won't do anything. And, and then they say that that's true. So it's, so if it's true, it's not it's really not a, myth. a myth. So there's that, there's that. But, um, uh, that should be potential myth. <laughs> <Is> it, uh, <laughs> Mythbusters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I, I think it, it was a, it's, a, it's, it's good to see that the government is paying attention to this issue, but I feel that they should be providing a bit more detail and an analysis is a bit more nuanced because if we go with these sorts of ideas, we're not really going to get to the core of the mm. problem or, or, or move towards a better resolution <laughs> to I the challenges there's, there's, it poses. There's not a lot of joined up thinking here. I think particularly when you mentioned the, the myth that uh, cybercrime is victimless, so they're, they're accepting that it's a myth. But yet I think other sections of government will perpetuate that myth, so something that you know far more about than I do, online fraud, the system where you report fraud and you get money back. So it's almost become privatised. So it's not actually treated as a criminal matter. You're the victim of fraud, you report it to online fraud, you get a crime number and then you can claim the money back from your bank or credit card, etc. So on the one hand, the government is saying, well, this is real crime, there is victim to be had. But on the other side, they're, they're belittling it by not treating it as a truly criminal matter, just as a money recovery. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's actually 
there's a, a difference there in that if you're a victim of a fraud and you try to report it, you will technically you're not the victim, the bank is, mm. right? If if somebody makes a payment using your card. So actually you could as an individual, you will only get that crime number and you will only actually be able to report mm. it if you don't get your money back. So if you try and call action fraud to report something like that mm. that's happened on your account and you and you tell them that you've got your money back, they they're going to tell you um the bank will report it, you don't need to report it. So so they do try but you're right in the sense that yeah there's a huge so the great majority of this stuff is being dealt with by the banks yeah. by the financial which undermines themselves. this idea that this is real crime yeah. i know there's this <laughs> distinction between it's yeah. a crime against the bank and not you but that's a very fine distinction that most mm. members of the public won't be able no. to to grasp no no i think also the the one thing that always stands out for me when i'm doing this research is that we refer to cybercrime which is a very very broad term and I think as long as we refer to it, that there's always going to be the mystification of cyber, people that aren't comfortable mm. online, um, as well as the fact that we don't we don't try to solve crime holistically. We have people that solve homicide and people that solve yeah. burglary and mm. people that solve rape and that kind of thing. Um, where we refer to crime online as cyber crime, it's just it's just it's just mm. it's all encompassing. Yeah. And it's too big. So people feel like they don't know where to start. Because if you look at it, if you compare what my company does in the anti piracy side of things, there's no difference between stealing someone's software online as there is to duplicating medication. It has the same risks, it has the, mm-hmm. the, the same theft of, of, of your property. Um, it, was not, it was not created under regulated um, environments, you run the risk of putting someone in, in danger. Mm. So someone duplicates 3D modeling software, designs a house and it collapses because the software wasn't correct. Exact same as someone trying to recreate heart medication, which isn't real. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, it definitely is a real crime. It's mm-hmm. just about how we define it and, and how we help people understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there we are. <laughs> that was the report. Um, I don't think I'm going to be including this report in my lit review. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I'm no, that's right. a serious indictment on, <laughs> on any piece of research. <laughs> not, not this iteration, at least. No, no, no. I'm sure. I'm sure there will be. And and like I said, I mean. There is some really good research going on. Um, it, I just think this particular one wasn't, you know, could could be improved. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so shall we move to the second story? Yeah. Yeah. So we're moving on now to something which no one perceives as not real crime. Um, I think that's yeah. something that everyone will will agree on. And it's what's becoming uh, the infamous case of Matthew Falder. Um, who uh, the third week of February, so last month, was convicted. Uh, uh, he pleaded guilty to 137 offences and was sentenced to 32 uh, years. And he was essentially a prolific... Uh, well, I'd use the term sex offender, but not that I'm trying to belittle what he did in any way, but he never actually physically abused mm-hmm. individuals, but he coerced others to abuse people. So I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the story, so I don't want to go into too much detail about the horrific facts of the story. Mm. But essentially he was a, a highly educated academic. He had a PhD from Cambridge in geophysics and worked in the University of, of Birmingham. And to all intents and purposes, he had a respectable life. Um, he enjoyed 3D printing and fireworks and, and dinosaurs, etc., according to his, his, right. his public Twitter account. But he had a very dark 
and sinister uh, and private life. So he essentially was someone who posted on legitimate mainstream websites. Yeah. Uh, most commonly Gumtree, uh, which is, I'm sure everyone who's listening will know what Gumtree is, but just in case it's a sort of buying and selling sort of site, the sort of equivalent of Craigslist in, in the US. And he masqueraded as a, a, a struggling female artist and encouraged people to send him pictures of themselves. Uh, he always insisted that their face was shown either naked or partially clothed. He offered to pay them for that. And of course, they never received payment. And then when he got those pictures, he used those pictures to blackmail the individuals. But he was a very strange form of blackmailer and he wasn't interested in money. He wasn't doing this for financial gain. Um, he was doing it so that he could blackmail them into obtaining even more and more yeah. uh, extreme images from them. Did he Did he then post those images in like dark web yeah. uh, well, sites? Yes. I didn't. I didn't understand whether there was a financial value to that. No. I, it's, apparently, there's one phrase from one of the the NCA, the National Crime Agency people who were working on this, that his, his reward was kudos within that dark web paedophile right. community. It's gained prestige isn't it, within yeah. the dark net. Yeah, yeah, the more you post on these websites, the more advantages you get and right. you, you rise up the, the, the pecking order, if you like. So as far as I'm aware, there was no monetary uh, advantage to him. It's one of the reasons why it made it more difficult to catch him in right. the end because there yeah. was no money trail to mm-hmm. To follow, so you can't follow the money as in the traditional yeah. Yeah. Um, sorts of cases. So he his victims numbered in in the in the hundreds, uh, um, and as I said, he asked them to do unspeakable things, which I won't mention. There's plenty of stuff on the web if you if you want to know exactly what he made them do. So he got charged with blackmail, possession of indecent images of children. I think at his worst, he blackmailed a person or attempted to blackmail a person into raping a very young daughter thankfully didn't occur but that was the the sort of person that we are dealing with here so yeah so he was very adept at covering his tracks uh, he as i said very well educated he was very used to the dark web uh, he used over 70 different email addresses yeah, yeah. he used tall mail uh, a lot which i believe is now no longer in operation but he used that you can just you can, as you say these things you can just imagine on the investigation side when you know law enforcement have to go through hundreds upon hundreds yeah. of lines of email of due diligence yeah. it's just yeah. a nightmare yeah <laughs> it must be. well that, that 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 links into a point that i'm going to make later about the enforcement issues that this case uh, raises so i think it all started at least in terms of the investigation in, in 2013 where the fbi started investigating uh paedophilia on the dark web and I think I'm right in saying that they even set up some websites themselves. Mm. Um, we won't get into the ethics of that uh, in order to try and uh, lure these paedophiles into it. And so as part of that investigation, they also came across a site which was called Hurt to the Core, mm-hmm. uh, which was described by the NCA as the worst site on the web. And it dealt with this, this I'd never heard of it before this case, this new form of, of pornography or paedophilia called hurtcore uh, and it's whether it's a derivation of hardcore or um, right. some people say it's because the purpose is to hurt the victims to the core there's 
debate about what the mean meaning actually is. But essentially, it's it's severe sites including images of rape, torture, uh, blackmail, uh, all forms of sadism that you can imagine, uh, etc. And that's essentially what Matthew Falder traded in. These are the images he got via um, blackmail. And so the uh, FBI found a user on a site who went under various usernames. One of the usernames he used was in the garden. And however they did it, they they, uh, discovered that this person was probably within the UK. So they passed on the details to the National Crime Agency in in the UK. And they investigated and they discovered other usernames that were, they linked to this same person. 666devil was, was another one. And I think the, the if it is a, a, a breakthrough came where it is, he posted uh, on, a, on a web page, uh, he posted a picture, a thumbnail picture under his profile. And it was supposed to be her tweak. He referred to it that this was supposedly his daughter. And he was going to torture her for the next week. And he invited other users on this paedophile community to uh, suggest ways that he could torture her. And then that picture was used, was also linked back then to his Gumtree account under right. a different name. So the pieces started to fall in into place. So that was probably his, his, his first mistake. Um, and so the police in the UK and, and elsewhere uh, received over 200 complaints about blackmail attempts by this username in the garden but they still couldn't quite locate him um, but then there was a truly international task force set up and I should say when that thumbnail was produced there was the task force then went into overdrive to try and safeguard that person in case it, the threat was real as it turns out that person that girl was a victim mm-hmm. but wasn't his daughter wasn't the victim in the way that they thought she might be and so I said it was truly um, international. So obviously there was the FBI and Homeland Security in the US. There was the National Crime Agency and GCHQ in the UK. Um, Europol and uh, Australian Federal Police were all involved. His web of, of blackmail uh, was so uh, vast. And anyway, they eventually they, they identified him as a person of interest, identified his address at uh, Birmingham they uh, surveilled him for quite a while there's even pictures online of him working on a laptop and a train that they had uh, obtained and they arrested him uh, as I said for these 137 offences there's 51 which remain on file so there's 137 that he pleaded uh, guilty to so it was a very very horrific story Obviously, a horrific uh, offender. As I said, I think he'll go down in infamy as, as one of the worst sex offenders in, in, in British history. But in terms then of the enforcement issues, I think that it, it's a bit of a mixed picture um, in terms of the takeaway. From On the one hand, there was this view, is this view that the dark web is impenetrable? You know, the sources of encryption are used in Tor and uh, are almost invulnerable um, and especially for someone like him who was a very educated person who was very adept at using computers he thought that he couldn't be caught but they did catch him um, but the reason I say it's a mixed picture is it's, it's positive in one side that they caught this person but you can only imagine the, the personnel I was 
and the the expense that this entailed with countries I mentioned a few countries America Australia there's other countries involved as well and you know obviously this was such an horrific level of offending that they would justify those resources but in many cases those resources won't be justified and you cannot expect this fully international response um, for every sort of crime that's committed via the, the, the dark web you know the fact that GCHQ was involved says something they were involved in trying to decrypt the you know the 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 seventy encrypted email addresses he used. So, yeah, the 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 number of countries involved, it, as I said, it was justified in this basis, but it's not always justified. And I think uh, Jamie Bartlett, who's a you know sometime friend of School of Urban Urban Swansea, um, who probably be familiar to anyone who have heard of the the dark web, written a very influential book on the dark web. He's very, you might say, pessimistic about the prospects. He said, what will happen is there's, there's learning will go on. Um, and I think it's, it's a feature that Matthew Calder himself had given advice to other um, paedophiles on how to gain the trust of children, pay them with vouchers, etc., to build up their trust so with the eventual aim of obtaining these indecent images. And so this clearly this community it shares ideas, shares, for want of a, a more appropriate description, good practice, good right. practice in the sense of <laughs> yeah. how to avoid detection, to, yeah, yeah uh, etc. And so clearly these communities now will be learning from his mistakes. They'll they'll try to discover what he did wrong, um, and will will try to learn from that. So any suggestion this is a signal that the the, the dark web is no longer a safe place, I think is is very, very premature and, and naively optimistic. Because the one calls for optimism and same with any crime, and, and it's, it's a cliche, but you've often heard it, that the criminals have to get lucky every time. The police only have to get lucky once. And I think this was that case. It's just a very, very sad fact that hundreds of people were abused in this way before um, the, the police got lucky, in a sense, because he did make mistakes. And if others who follow in his footsteps learn from those mistakes, then it, it, obviously the game of cat and mouse will, will continue. So that's what I mean by it's a mixed picture. Yeah, it's yeah. good that he was caught, that the dark web didn't provide immunity from, from detection, but it does also illustrate the lengths and the expense that the enforcement agencies have to go to, to to apprehend these sorts of criminals. And as I said, when you mentioned about the, the money trail, when there is a purely some form of grotesque sexual motivation for these actions it's not a monetary motivation that makes them even harder to to, to trace yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i'm sorry that's not a very <laughs> uh, light-hearted story no no but a valuable one yeah yeah and i mean on, on on one hand he did get caught and i think that's positive yeah <laughs> so that that's something yeah. positive that's come out of this Right. Should we move to our last story? Sure. Yeah, so there was one headline in Computer Weekly um, this week, I think it was, entitled Cyber Criminals Catching Up with Nation State Attacks. So we're still talking about cybercrime offenders. Uh, And anyway, the story is based on a report from CrowdStrike and their latest global threat report highlights that the 
a distinction, the distinction between state-sponsored actors or an attack that is associated with a, a, a state-sponsored uh, 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 attack <laughs> um, and non-state-sponsored, which they call e-crime. So <laughs> basically, politically state, politically motivated state-sponsored mm. attacks are are increasingly difficult to distinguish from non-state actors mm. so that that i think that is the that's the main the main point they make of course they, they talk about malware continuing to flourish and um the, the same the same sort of tools that are used by white hackers as they're called so the cyber security experts mm. also being used by cyber criminals and they actually mention they mention coordinated law enforcement actions mm having been successful there's a number of successes in the past year that law enforcement can be can be happy about so it's an interesting story it is a bit <laughs> so what do you, what are your thoughts on this whole state sponsored versus other criminals well i think the first point obviously would be that it's just to demystify the terms because i think the whole nation state attacks and and e-commerce i don't know you did describe it but it, it's important to note that um not all activity online that relates to hacking is necessarily illegal and not all of it is necessarily meant to, to harm. It could also be to protect, which is where the, the white um, hat hacking comes in. Um, but also it's the, the identification, or I think the, the, the way that they've categorized the two different options almost makes the reader believe that there are just two different layers. And I think there's a lot more of a, of a tiered approach. And when, you, when they refer to uh, you know, the blurring of the lines between the everyday hacker and the the nation states i don't think those lines are as clear as they make out or as this article makes out in the first place so nations that were able to to um, conduct this sort of online activity were able to do so because they had um, elite coders or in their own in their own rights um, criminals that they had converted to to doing their, their work but not only that as as um, online crime continues to become more sophisticated people are able to gain access to plug-and-play type software things like malware and ransomware that relatively anyone can go onto, for example the dark web or a lot of different forums on, on the regular web and find access to software that they can purchase and the reality of the matter is that people perceive there to be this criminal activity happening online and it's, it's them and us but it's not as distinct and as clear-cut as that so organized crime back in you know 40s and 50s and 60s when the, the mob was was rife and those sorts of things it's the exact same thing now it's just in a digital space so you get organized digital crime or organized digital hacks and those sort of things and they are actually organizations so they have proper structures they have people that work nine to five jobs um, they have advertising and marketing you can for example if you look at streaming sites or or peer-to-peer -peer sites they often sell advertising on their sites to people with uh, who want you to click on them for example and then have malware downloaded to your computer and this particular article is talking about the idea that the non-nation state hackers are using less and less malware type attacks because what their key purpose is is, is to gain access so once they get access to your system it's about getting access to information so um, it's not necessarily planting malware to to run a, a virus and that's why it's bypassing antiviruses but more about gaining access to the information itself and to do things like download your images, download your personal documents or personal information to potentially uh, conduct crime later on. But I think the important there is to, is to note that it's not as clear-cut as nation-state and 
the individual sitting in a dark room typing yeah. like a laptop. There's yeah. there's a lot more of a diversity within the actual structures. Mm-hmm. Do you get a sense of how organised is organised crime in the sense uh, online? I wonder if the because of the structure of the internet, it's, yeah. it's so horizontal. You know, I wonder whether in um, uh, hacker forums and things like that, apparently the organization can be, even though it's organized, it's a lot more flexible as well than, say, like a mafia style. Yeah. Um, in, in that people are recruited into a particular team a to do something. A joint project, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they kind of disappear, which also makes it hard to to catch them. Well, if you think like, about it, 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 and this is this is where I think where a lot of my, my focus comes on. So to obviously, first of all, set the preface that I was not originally, or I am not a cyber security specialist. What I am as an individual from a business strategy perspective is interested in this topic, which is why I'm researching it. Um, But what's important to note here is if you look at any industry, you've gone through different um, fluctuations. So we go from a centralized model to a decentralized model. And if you look at a lot of industries now, like law, like uh, media, like advertising, they have a lot of consultants who have no home. They have no um, home office or head office or employer. What they do is they are a graphic designer or a copywriter or a editor for hire and the same thing happens yes someone has a particular skill which they flaunt online and someone asks them for it they might start off with the best possible intentions and halfway through the project realize they're actually hacking or they're actually doing something along those lines Mm -hmm. not to say that they didn't start off with criminal intentions but exactly like he's saying you'll go through instances where someone is let's use the word attacked um, by an organization which is only banded together for that particular occurrence which could be thousands of users but it could uh, last a week or two and then be done with yeah yeah so we're talking about very loose organizations here when we talk about organized crime we we are but also it's important i think that this is where i keep trying to go back to is is we we keep trying to apply blanket pigeonholes Mm -hmm. to everything and i think the reality of the matter is with the web and with cyber um just as big as a term is so so too are are the definitions within it so there are actual hierarchies there are companies out there that run Dozens of websites have endless number of, of servers with, with let's use the, the easy example of media. So music, movies, TV programs, uh, series, that sort of thing. And they just keep popping up new websites every time they're shut down in a different location. And what their core aim is to make sure that they gain users. So exactly like a blogger would, they write content with the hopes of gaining 100,000 uh, readers per, per week. These people want the exact same thing with the idea that they then sell that space mm-hmm. to malware um, users. So they want to, you click on it, you try to stream a, a TV program on a particular site, you get a pop-up. That pop-up, if you click on it, starts to download a malware to your computer. Someone's actually bought that space. Mm-hmm. And that's an entire organization that allows them to continue operating. So they can be owned by a person in Russia with a web developer in Australia and a graphic designer in, in England. Um, and they're an organization who pay salaries and go on leave and and deal with employment issues um, and it's difficult to try and pigeonhole them into uh, you're a criminal running around in a strap jersey. <laughs> it's not quite how it works. Yeah. Um, I think that's it. Unless you've got anything else to add. No, I presume there's some advertising you've Yes, I've got some free... So we do this thing, we've got free advertising at the end of the show, so if there's anything you want to give a shout to, uh, (laughs) this is the time. I thought I'd share with our listeners, some of them may already know about this, but if you're not a techie person but are curious about 
learning to code and understanding how coding works, there is a program that was developed by MIT to, to sort of teach kids how to code, but it's, it's fun for everybody, it's not just for kids. It's called Scratch, um, and I've been playing with Scratch <laughs> over the past couple of weeks, so I thought I'd, I'd share that one. And then on the topic of people not letting themselves be bamboozled by big numbers without, without questioning what they mean in context, etc., there's, a, there's an excellent book, it's very, very easy to read. It's called The Tiger That Isn't, Seeing Through a World of Numbers. Uh, it was, it's from back in 2007. It's by Andrew, Andrew Dillnott and Michael Blastland. And it's, it's short and sweet, but it's an excellent book, especially for people who are, you know, don't work with statistics every day. It just sets the tone for how we should face up to big numbers and not be scared by them and, and really question them to, to, to see what they mean. So yeah, did you have any free advertising? No, nothing, nothing for me. Excellent. Have you got uh, any items for... I don't have free advertising, but if given the topic, I think there's something that people might be interested in. There's a really good book that's actually written more like a novel than a theoretical book by a professor called Mary Aiken, um, who's actually here in the UK, if I'm not mistaken, and it's called The Cyber Effect. And I've actually been reading it for my research, and it's written um, almost like watching an episode of CSI, um, and she actually consulted on CSI um, oh. Cyber. So if you want to learn more about this mm. sort of industry, it's a, it's a good place to start just to get a kind of baseline. Excellent. I shall add that to the show notes. Yeah. So and, uh, sorry, and of on. course we'd like to thank Luke for his, uh, Absolute pleasure. his contribution. Hopefully it won't be the last. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. Uh, and thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Cheers. The material you had on memory sticks. You have to edit that out, don't you? Leave it ring. I always forget about that. Andrew, I'm trying to concentrate. I'm not bloody moving in this chair. <laughs> <laughs>